You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Digital Noise is back. Sir Aaron, the Lionhearted, is here. And I am here to bequeath upon you. I don't know where I'm going with this. I lost it. Just make it up as you go along. It's fine. (laughs) It's all important. Yes, and. (laughs) Uh, I I am here as a herald of mediocre movies and some really amazing movies. Fair enough. That's our usual Digital Noise. That's like our our coat of arms. Actually, this is a special set because... There's a set of movies, one of which, by the way, was a childhood favorite of mine, which is a different experience watching as an adult. We're not covering uh, Taboo 2. <laughs> uh, you know, my mom gets upset enough when I talk about the movies she showed me as a kid. Um, she showed you Taboo 2 no. as a kid? <laughs> but uh, it's a lot of mediocre stuff. And then, like, two of the three movies that I am most excited about for this entire year that I, I may have cried during the trailers yeah. for both. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's an emotional set. You're an, you're an old softy like me. Oh, yeah. I'm like one of those people I see a movie, I'm like a trailer comes on, I'm there with a group of people to review it, I'm like, fuck, I'm going to have to pretend like I got a cold or something. <laughs> I know the trailer alone is going to make me go... <laughs> <laughs> but then again, I used to cry at that one GE light uh, uh, bulb commercial with that played Pachelbel's Cannon during it. Oh, dude, uh, <laughs> I remember, I realized I was a softy when there was some... Rara, sis, boom, bah, we're protecting our home Air Force commercial once. And it got to me. And it was like some guy flying his plane and looking at a picture of his family. <laughs> and I just started to cry. We had a German pimpal with us at the time who looked over at me and went, oh, fuck off, Aaron. You know he's going to bomb some family. <laughs> like, I don't even remember how um, long ago th- this was. It may have been before your time. I don't know, but the Marines used to have these commercials to try and sell geeks on joining the Marines that was like Dungeons and Dragons shit where they where, were like... Where he was fighting with a saber? Yeah. Yes. I was a kid when those were around. Yeah, and I was like, that's all... Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that worked for me too. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a lot of movies to cover, so we're going to get right into it. Don't forget... On the page itself for Digital Noise, there are pictures of all the movies we're covering, including time codes of where you can check out each one if you just want to go directly to review. But generally speaking, a lot of times we have the most fun with ones you've never even heard of. So don't yeah. do that. Just listen to the whole damn podcast, people. Should. Yeah. But but you have the option. But if you click on those links, it goes to an Amazon page where you can buy those things. If you do that, we get a nice little kickback. In fact, if you buy anything starting from one of those links, we get a nice little kickback. So do that. And don't lie. I know the movies we're covering at least half of you are going to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> so next, first up, we have, and this is one of those movies, I saw the trailer, I was like, dude, I'm so fucking excited for this, because I love Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That was like a real favorite of mine in, in the 80s. Like, wow, Steve Martin and Michael Caine working together like as like con men who are working against each other, then with each other. Like That was just such a classic comedy, which in and of itself was a remake of a 64 film called Bedtime Story, which I did not really realize until just now <laughs> but, but uh the hustle being a remake where you know which is gender swapped and i'm a big fan of anne hathaway i, think. I am as well and i actually really like rebel wilson uh for she, the most part she has done stuff i really liked and she's done stuff i really hated and i was like fingers crossed this is not going to be one of those comedies that's all fat girl fall down go boom. yeah but guess yeah. what it is. It's it is. It's fat girl fall down go boom comedy. Um, she plays uh, Penny, who is an Australian girl who has been a small time grifter uh, who like, uses very conjure You can't believe anyone would fall for in the very broad comedy style of the film to get like three hundred dollars there, five hundred dollars there. Well, 
she ends up encountering Josephine, played by Anne Hathaway, who is the very she's upper crust. Um, uh, she's the socialite con. Socialite, yeah. She's after the big fish and yeah. goes for lots of money, and she lives in an incredible like like hillside. Uh, like looking over the ocean, I get, it, where is it? Is it Greece or something? It's uh, or French uh, Riviera. Just looking at it, I was like, I want to climb up the hillside and assassinate her because I've been playing a lot of Assassin's Creed lately. So. It's the kind of house that if you owned that house, I'm sorry, you wouldn't need to do that anymore. Right? You shouldn't <laughs> like, retire. Whatever amount you were aiming for, she hit that. So she has full time employees. They meet because like, uh, and and Penny's like, oh yeah, which uh, right off the bat you're like, wait, what? Just tells her, yeah, I'm a con person. Yeah, okay. So what I do is this, and I'm going to the French Riviera. Because I hear there's lots of big fish suckers, and uh, Josephine's like, "Oh no, we don't need this muddying up the water." So she arranges to get her basically arrested. Then comes in like, I'm, "That's so horrible that happens." Or I'm going to pay your bail, but they, you know, the only way this works is you got to leave the country. So uh, she basically comes right back anyway and blackmails her and says, "Look, I know and can prove that you're a con person, Josephine, and I will." Tell everyone that needs to be told, unless you teach me your ways, make me your Padawan, which of course leads to, leads to an in, a whole series of fatty fall down go boom. Well, and, and that's that's only like you're basically talking about the first third of the movie because at that point they meet, uh, they fall out again, and then decide to have a bet to determine who gets to claim this rich hunting ground, and it's based on who can con this one particular guy the best. And that's the rest of the movie. So it's like, I, I went in expecting that first movie at the very least, where it was Anne Hathaway teaching Ripper Wilson how to con, and yay, we get to watch them grow and become friends together. No, instead, it's we get to watch them snipe at and be mean to each other the entire movie, too. And Alexander Sharp plays said... A target uh, who's better known for his Broadway work, but he is like this super nerdy guy who is really rich because he invented some app, which Josephine, of course, is playing to a point of ridiculousness, how clueless she is about, you know, the world. Well, it's it's a really terrible app, too, where you can basically badmouth your friends, I think. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's, it's like one of those, like... We've seen a lot of shit that's pretty bad, so it doesn't seem completely outside the, the realm of possibility, but at the same time, it's just kind of a stupid joke. Well, anytime you have an app, and I put that in quotes, that is, makes someone rich, and they try to describe the app, it's always the same thing. It's like that, or it's a joke of the day app or something. So, uh, 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 Anne Hathaway wants to come in with her normal, this nerd, this is going to be easy to do some, but... Uh, Penny comes in going, like, I'm going to pretend to be blind <laughs> because she had done her research because the guy in question's grandmother was blind and says, oh, there's an eye doctor who could treat me, but it's so expensive. You see where we're going. Here. Which, I'm not going to lie, I and this is probably insensitive of me, but... I dug the blind jokes. Like, that plot thread of her continuously proving that she is indeed blind. Where she's forced to, like, they run do into more shit. more and more outlandish stuff. But it was like, like it was... I actually laughed at some of those. They were terrible jokes. And it, it's terrible. It was more fatty fall down go boom jokes. It is. And, and, and this I'm like, movie Ugh. is so unfunny that I can point to my favorite joke which is they wear dresses that look like trash bags, so whenever they're running from someone, they can bend over, and they just look like they're in a pile of trash bags. Right. I was like, okay. They use that, like, twice. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, I actually cracked up both times. I, I laughed the first time, but then I thought about it. I was like, so the movie is equating Penny yeah. with trash. Yes. Oh, it's terrible from... A, if you look at the subtext of what's going on at all, this is an atrocious film. Uh and then, like, uh, Josephine's like, oh, I'm going to pretend to be the doctor she's looking for and then make it cruel where I'm abusing her. I mean, if you've seen the original, you've seen these beats. The only difference is Michael Caine and Steve Martin were genuinely funny as hell with it. And this is, like, or this aimless, what have we added to this other than gender swapping version of the film? I don't think I've ever said this before, but watch Heartbreakers instead with Jennifer Love Hewitt. 
because it's also a couple of con women competing over who can con a guy to trick him into bed. And it's the better movie. I have genuinely no idea if I've actually seen that movie. That's okay. I, it's not good. I thought you were talking about Heartbeats, which you've probably not. <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah, I, I think this is – it's not as irredeemable as a lot of people would have you believe. I think there's a few moments here and there. It's not one of those. I mean, this ain't movie forty three. It's not. You're not going to spend the whole movie going, "God, I hate this so fucking much." I mean, they're two very talented actresses. It's it's competently put together. It's, it just its biggest problem is with any bad comedy is that it just doesn't know what it wants to be. It has no target that it's aiming at, and so it just kind of is all over the place with very generic jokes. This is one of the many movies that comes out every year that makes a little blip on the radar, and in a year's time, we will legitimately forget that it ever existed. It doesn't do anything really memorable. It's not atrocious or offensive, like, like truly offensive. Right. It's just kind of there. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason to go out of your Which way to is see this, but unfortunate. I mean, it's one of those, if it was on cable or some shit, or it was like on your streaming and you're like, I've seen everything, and I just feel like, some days you have those days, like, I want to see something that's not great. That I'm like, okay, that's not going to be terrible and, and a struggle to get through. Because this isn't a struggle to get it's through. Not. But one of those, like, I just want something I don't have to put any effort into whatsoever. Uh, like, that includes the energy that's expended by laughing. I, I will say, the the very end of the movie did legitimately surprise me. I did not see it coming. However, it also was in no way earned or funny or good. Fair. Um, yeah, it, it was one of those, like, if this had been a better movie, it would have been a great moment. Yeah. But it's not a better movie, so it's not a great moment. Um, what we've got here, if you are a fan, and I know you're out there, people, hiding in your little caves. <laughs> uh, there's I a, like the hustle. There's a few bonus features. Hitting the mark for four and a half minutes is a look at specifically trying to explain why the gender switch enhances the film. Um, it doesn't. I don't have a problem with gender switches, but you first have to have a good script. Yeah. And you have to have a good reason for remaking it and making uh, the reason for remaking it more than just, but look, now they're women. I'm fine with remaking a film with that, but that can't be the only reason you did it. Yeah, the only thing really special about them being women is that Rebel Wilson targets douchebaggy bros. Right. Bars. That's it. There's comedy class for six minutes, which is a look at the lead performances. Con artist for six and a half minutes, which looks at the the bigger supporting cast. And audio commentary with the director. Yeah, I, this is... It's meh. Uh, let's move on to what is widely considered by many to be a romantic comedy classic. Although I will say, I don't think it necessarily stood the test of time, but it's still very charming. And that's Roxanne. Yeah. Um, interesting thing about Roxanne, which I didn't realize till we were setting this up, that Steve Martin, who plays the Cyrano de Bergerac role, which this is basically a very soft-toned remake of that story, wrote it and wrote the whole script oh. and had been working on it. Like he had seen the play, he went he went to go see the play somewhere and was like, "Oh, this is so great! I have this great idea for this." Not realizing that once they actually did it, he was like, "The worst decision I ever made in my life because that goddamn nose took like an hour and a half to put on and take off every single day." Um, but like, yeah, I want this to work and worked on it for years, like finessing the script before he even presented it to anybody. I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. This was a passion project for Martin, who plays that lead Cyrano uh, role here, here known as C.D. Bales. It's actually kind of disappointing to me. <laughs> How so? Oh, because it's not better than it is? Yeah, because he's made such better movies than this. Oh, this is definitely not. And, and like, I mean, it's in his top, I would say it's in his top five films, but it's number five. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, continue with the plot. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I would rather rewatch this in some ways than The Jerk. I think The Jerk's a better movie, but there's okay. a point I, that I, The I, Jerk I, is kind of like Stairway to Heaven. I'm like, I've seen it enough I, times. I admit I would too, but I am also that one weird guy who doesn't like The Jerk. Oh, fair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in this version of the story, uh, Martin plays C.D. Bales, who is the fire chief of a very small skiing town of Nelson, Washington, Everybody likes the shit out of him, and why wouldn't they? But hates the fire department. Yeah. Inexplicably despises the fire department. Well, not inexplicably. They're so bad at their jobs. He gets in an actual fight in the beginning with two guys whose 
only provocation is that he's a fireman. They're, they literally go, oh, it's a fireman. Fuck this guy. <laughs> well, who? Wait, who was it? One it's of them? Kevin Nealon. Kevin Nealon, yeah. They're both... This movie is chock full of great character actors who were like SNL alums or were about to be that guy in a bunch of movies and shows. Right, right. Um, so... Yeah, it's established very early on. Not only is he very funny, he's very well spoken. He's great. He has a great way with words, um, and and that most of the town really likes him. Although there are those who, like, it seems weird post nine eleven that anybody would go fireman. What good are you? Exactly. Like no one would do that now, ever, anywhere. But like, like really, that was a thing. Like and it oh, happens several times. Yeah. Oh, you're like cops who couldn't cut it. Like what? And now it's like exactly the opposite. Right? Right? But uh, that he's also a badass. Like he like effortlessly in an equivalency to Cyrano de Bergerac sword fighting scenes takes these guys out with a tennis racket. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, but he apparently can't get it altered because he has a al- very dangerous allergy to anesthetics, and he is mixed on whether or not he even would if he could. You know, because to some degree, it's like this such it's a distinctive a thing. But uh, he's also close to his god sister, uh, Dixie, played by Shelley Duvall. Yep. Always nice to see. Uh, but who is in here a surprising amount, considering uh, that her role doesn't require it overall. But Shelley no, Duvall. She, she's the gay best friend, except she's not gay. <laughs> yeah, that's actually kind of accurate. Yeah, she's like that, that plays, that fulfills that type of role here. But a new person has come into town, and that is Daryl Hannah, is Roxanne. Oh, my God. So, as an adult... Oh, uh, young Daryl Hannah? When I grew up, I was too young to appreciate the beauty of Daryl Hannah. So, you never saw Splash? I I was, like, five. Uh, So, you you had no So, like, yeah, I don't get it. (laughs) So, watching this again, oh, my God, she she was was gorgeous. just stunning and unique and different. Yeah. You know, like, back then, you were like, I remember going, like, who is that? Because it's not like she's, like, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. She just has that... A quality to her that's so different than anybody else you're used to. She's got that, she's that hot chick who's not supermodel hot, but she has that quirky, cool, oh wait, we are talking about like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl kind yeah, of Yeah, yeah, we are. Right? We are. She's, she's totally a proto Manic Pixie <laughs> Dream Girl. She's proto Manic Pixie Dream Girl. She's a astronomer and a, a, not astrologer. That doesn't fact come up that confusion. And it, CD is totally taken with her, but so is. Uh, they've just brought in a bunch of new recruits to the fire department who are all, one of the running jokes is they're so wildly incompetent, it's almost inhuman. Yeah, so they bring in an actual, legitimate firefighter, who is the only handsome and shaped guy in the movie, whose name I can't remember. Uh, It's Chris. Chris. You can't remember that. No, I can't remember the actor's name. Oh, Rick Rosevich, (laughs) who's also known as playing Slider in Top Gun. (laughs) Um, Yeah, who is dumb as a bag of rocks, but He's a halfway decent firefighter, yeah. and he falls madly in love with her and goes to Steve Martin and goes like, hey, I want you to help me to meet her. And Martin, because of his nose, is like, well, she's never going to like me anyway. So it turns into a sort of like him feeling like there's some sort of romantic pleasure for him by helping this guy do it. And a lot of stuff, like like he's feeding him lines to give to her, but the problem is once the guy's in her presence, he just turns into a drooling idiot. So they I, have to, I think at one point he literally says, I like boobs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he does. Uh, yeah, he can't say anything on his own. So they rely on like earpieces and things like that Which, for him to feed him lines. And a lot of this like in, in modern day parlance is like, would she ever forgive Steve Martin yeah. for doing this? That was kind of that was the hill that I had a hard time climbing. Like when I was young, this was the movie I watched a lot when I was younger, and um, watching it now, like I just didn't really care about the romance at all because it it, it was they treated her like such an object. Nobody in their right mind would be cool with any of these people after the fact. And it just kind of seemed inevitable that the Daryl Hannah and Steve Martin would end up together. Yeah. So it ended up being more of let me watch Steve Martin act in skits than really let me watch a cohesive narrative. I mean, there's no question that the high points of this film is when they're Steve Martin centric 
yeah. sequences. Like there's a very famous sequence in there that you can actually like, uh, there's probably 7,000 YouTube clips of just the scene the bar. at the bar yes. where somebody like insults his nose and he goes, is that really the best you can do? Which, uh, the, another fight that starts because he's a fireman. Yeah. Uh, like it goes, uh, like you, what was it he challenges him to do to get the number? I can't remember. Uh, I'll throw a dart. Throw a dart and, yeah. and I'll come up with that many better insults than yeah. you did. And so in front of this huge crowd, he has to insult his own nose 20 times. <coughs> and it's brilliant. And they, it they still just, holds up. They just do it. It's yeah. like they, they don't cut, they don't trick, they, they don't montage it. It's just boom, wide shot this shit. It's, Mart- it's amazing. It's Martin on fire. Yeah. And it's a great great sequence. And unfortunately, that is the high point of the film, which takes place right in the middle of it. Because the romantic comedy is sweet, but it's sweet to its a fault. You know, it, it's almost... Uh, uh, it, it just... It sticks in your teeth, man. Yeah. Like, and there's a lot of questions by today's standards that you go, that's awkward. That's yeah. uncomfortable. So there has to be a, a real sense of genuineness for a romantic comedy romance to work that when Harry Met Sally still holds up with something like that, where you One still watch that and you yep. go, absolutely, I still believe all of, like this stuff here. I still feel good about this. Roxanne, you don't really feel great about the romance. Well, it's it's because the movie itself doesn't really seem to care much about the romance. No. Like, it, it does feel, now that you say Steve Martin, this was his passion project, it does feel like in writing it, he ended up just putting more and more scenes of him being awesome in. And I, I wish they had just dumped the whole two lovers plot and just made a romantic movie between him and Daryl Hammond. Or an assassin movie where he just kills anyone who Dude, looks at his Dude, not everything is Assassin's Creed. Play other games. <laughs> <laughs> Press the triangle button. Hide in the bush. Press the triangle button. Hold it down. Having said that, actually, watching a movie where Steve Martin is an assassin, like a parody of Assassin's Creed, would be flipping amazing. I mean, it would, by it would have to be better than the Assassin's Creed movie they actually made. Yes. No. I mean, default. honestly, we could make a movie better than that. <laughs> uh, um, there are no supplements. This is Mill Creek. They've done that sort of like fake VHS weathered cover for it thing, which is in and of itself cool. Yeah, it was pretty nice. You know, but there's nothing bonus here like, at all. This is for people who watched this back in the day and really got a kick out of it and want to see it again and good, uh, good, good transfer. Well, another... One from Mill Creek with the same series, with that same weathered VHS look as the new kids, as opposed to Roxanne, which I've seen many times over the years, including in the theater when it came out. Sorry. I know. I'm old. That's okay. Feel free to trumpet your own oldest. Uh, is 1985's The New Kids. I had never even heard of this movie, but same I'm here. sure that at some point I encountered it on the shelf and just went meh and passed by it. But this is directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who's always going to be best known for directing the first Friday the 13th movie. Oh, I <laughs> so I completely got it confused, and I thought the movie that we're probably going to talk about in the next couple was the one directed by the Friday the 13th guy. Yeah. And so I was watching that movie going, what the hell? Weirdly. That makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> this was written by Jake, Gyll- Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal's father. Oh, yeah, Steve that really makes me ask some questions about their relationship with their dad now. <laughs> you know, when I saw this, I was like, Ugh. I didn't ask for it. I asked for Roxanne. They sent this along as well. It's like, I didn't want to watch this movie. Uh, but then I saw it features James Spader as a bad 80s yuppie kid with bleach blonde hair. And I was like, I admit that's kind of enough to make me watch so, the movie. I'm not going to lie. I really liked this movie. Okay, you're like, a weirdo. And I, I had what kind is, of a blast watching this movie. What, I, I didn't. I didn't dislike it anywhere near as much as I thought I would. So, but first of what's all, what's the plot? It, it has the strangest opening I have ever seen out of any movie, where a military dad and like during the credits, opening two minutes, comes in and wakes up his son, jokes with him about the fact that he was up late last night jerking off too much, jumps into bed with his teenage daughter, pats her on the ass and tells her that she has a sexy body. So two minutes in, I was convinced this movie is going to be about a molesty dad and teens dealing with that. Right. Like, like I even messaged Chris, like, I'm pretty sure this guy is on the sex offender list somewhere. <laughs> uh, nope. About a minute and a half later, right after establishing that he is a military badass and is training the kids for ROTC, he dies off screen. 
Mother, dad, the whole family is dead. The kids are orphaned. By the way, Eddie Jones, who yep. played uh, Jonathan Kent in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And was the main character in Halloween 3, I'm pretty sure. Um, no. You're the, thinking the dad? The guy who was the main investigator in Halloween Oh, 3? no. Okay, never mind. All Sorry. Right. <laughs> um, anyways, so the kids uh, get adopted, sort of, by their dad's cousin... Was it his dad's cousin? He had Uncle Charlie and Aunt okay, brother. Very, very different guy. He has sunk all of his money into a... Oh, I'm sorry. You're right, actually. That was the guy from Halloween 3. My mistake. Damn, damn right. Tom okay, good. It was Tom Atkins. I was looking at the wrong place on Wikipedia. He sees these movies after I do. I always see him and then see him. So sometimes like two weeks, so I forget. So, <laughs> so, so this uncle has sunk all of his money into a product... Uh, amusement park gas station. <laughs> right off the bat, you're like, dude. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Just, uh, what but, are you doing? <laughs> so, so they move into a storage shed there and are helping him build up and install like yeah, roller the, coasters. What you say? Brother and sister. Brother and sister. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry. Uh, uh, Shannon Presby and Lori Laughlin. Yep. Uh, the soon to be jail for a month yes. because white people don't go to jail just a for month, crimes. really. Yeah, it's like one to six months. Yeah. And, and I think Felicity Huffman is not going to jail at all. Well, because she's the bigger actor. Yeah, yeah. So we love Felicity Huffman. Yeah, America's broken. <laughs> um, but anyways, so all of this is completely antithetical to the plot. It's just window dressing. That's that's the background. They go to school. They meet. Um, all the kids. All the kids, including a baby-faced, red-headed... Not James Spader. Oh, uh, 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 Eric Stoltz? Yep, Eric Stoltz, who's the good guy in class, and a blonde, bleached blonde, sociopathic redneck, James Spader. Yeah, like, <laughs> hold that in your head for a second. Yeah. I want you to try and picture this. James Spader, Ultron... Bleached blonde. I mean, like Billy Idol level yeah, bleach blonde. Hair almost down to his shoulders. Yeah, mullet. Yeah, right. <laughs> like New Orleans style redneck. Who who is a drug dealer and is him and his group of buddies are raising dogs to do dog fights. Yeah, and they entertain themselves by shooting bottles and fucking around. So <laughs> they on a lark. Decide that Lori Laughlin is hot and make a bet as to which of them can bang her. And two of the James Spader and one other guy try. Both of them get turned down because of course. And both of them within five seconds of asking her out, call her a stupid bitch. And that is the setup of the movie because they basically decide to make this family's lives hell based on the fact that she wouldn't have sex with him. Yeah. And w- which is they why I say crazy that stalkers. This movie is accidentally so very prescient to our modern times and like I was laughing my way through it. And and the movie is an escalating scenes of carnage as they wreak havoc on this poor family. Um and there's a couple of really interesting moments where the family fights back. Uh in particular you you see James Spader who was amazingly attractive back then uh, in a pair of whitey tighties held to be hostage fair, for a while. Still actually looks pretty good, yeah, all things is, considered. He, he looks like you like 30 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the whole... <laughs> that, that, that red from... Thank you. No, who's the, he's got the bald with the beard I, thing I going on. Talking. Yeah, yes. he, what's the name of the show? The Blacklist? Blacklist. Yeah, he plays red on the Blacklist. Red Reddington or some shit? It was a weird connection. <laughs> Sorry. You but, turned me on. Aaron. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Let's come hey, get Chris. some. Let's, let's talk Come after. get some. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So uh, all of this builds to a climax, which is obscenely violent and action-packed, where the kids and the family come to a confrontation or a head. I enjoyed the hell out of this movie, actually. It's a weird film because it, it it's not really a horror movie. It's not quite a thriller Eric Stoltz doesn't really do anything. No. He's just there. Yeah. Which I kept expecting him to be a major player. Dude, I kind of like liked the parts with the older br- the brother who like does this thing where he breaks into yeah. like James Spader's house and like 
holds like, him at knife point. Holds him at like, knife point. I'm like, I'm gonna damn. kill you. If yeah, you I literally, I'm like, holy shit. And that guy is the good guy <laughs> doing that. He's like, holds a fucking belly knife to his throat. It's like, I'll fucking slit your throat. And I'm like, oh my God. It was a different time, people. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, and, and then it ends with like a whole series of like, like, the equalizer traps and shit, like yep. an A team type putting together of, of stuff. I like, kind of <laughs> love this movie. <laughs> Just like all the dudes like coming at them at the theme park, really in the worst thought out plan in history. Well, it's not. It's it's redneck revenge. Yeah, they all have shotguns and like. Oh, I can't. I want to go in and talk about some of the great kills, but like it's such a fun ending. But there's nothing bonus here once again, except for the cool thing and. And honestly, I agree with you to the extent that this is one of those films that's kind of a like a minor gem. It's certainly nothing important, but there's enough things in retrospect with a lot of the actors that seeing them here play something very outside of their wheelhouse in terms of it moves really fast. It's got a bunch of unintentional laughs that are big laughs, yeah. like not small ones. I mean, it's entertaining for like, what it is. I, I- I don't know that I like. I, I would recommend this. I don't know that I need special features. I wouldn't mind some retrospective interviews with some of the cast members because it, it does have such an amazing group of actors involved. But like, I'm, I'm fine with this being this kind of a release. I would recommend people check this out if you want. If you're into that weird '80s kind of laughably enjoyable but not great film, you know, the B movie. If you're a B movie, the B movie. All right. So next up, we're going in a very different direction. Is 1990s, the reflecting skin. Ugh. Now this really is one of those movies that I've considered renting about a billion times, uh, and not since Lord of the Rings. I mean, God knows since I don't know if I've been to a video store since Lord of the Rings came out. But um, <laughs> Viggo Mortensen, one of his very earliest roles was in this film, and he plays one of the leads here. Of course, it was Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. But this is basically like Blue Velvet just done with American Gothic and nowhere near yeah. as good. <sighs> and, and that's not saying you shouldn't watch it or anything like that. I'm just saying Blue Velvet is a major classic to me. This is a trying to do the same things Velvet is doing in a lot of ways, but for, like, Kansas wheat fields. <laughs> so... So the guy who made this movie, I looked him up, Philip Stanley, I believe is his name. Philip Ridley. Philip Ridley. He is a playwright, and that's his primary work, and he's a novelist, and he's only made a few movies. Uh, the Craze, he wrote. But he, he writes and directs his movies, and clearly this is a passion project. And I watched a little bit of the special features, and he talks about he'd never been to America, and he saw some paintings of the landscape, and like that's what he decided to make a movie about and it shows this movie is really surreal. I don't even know really how to describe the plot of the movie. Like it's kind of about youth. There's a bunch of young characters. So so maybe blue velvet isn't even as blue velvet in tone is correct. Yeah. Uh, In terms of plot, it still is very David Lynch. No question. Just more like like surreal. It feels a lot like David Lynch and, um, it feels like what would have happened if David Lynch made Tidelands. Yes, that's accurate. You know? Yes, or, or the way I described this, it would have been my, better because <laughs> my, my wife watched part of this and only part of it. And the way I ended up describing it to her was, it's like somebody found a picture of a dead prostitute, or found a dead prostitute and painted the most beautiful painting in the world. Like it's a gorgeous movie. Oh, it's beautiful. There are wonderful vistas. The the acting is all surreal, and it pulls you in. There's stuff but that... But the director it, doesn't know how to hypnotic. work with actors at but, the same time. Oh, my God. Is this the bleakest, most violent, reprehensible, harsh movie I've ever seen? And it's not it's a bummer. meant to make sense in any sort of rational way, but it has enough of, like, really cool sort of, like, insinuations towards the supernatural and weird metaphorical shit going on that it's eminently watchable. Yeah, it is. It's just, it has, it's one of those few films that approaches that emotionally understood dream logic that Lynch is so great at, but it still doesn't nail it. Well, Lynch, he has this way of, and I like that we're not really talking about what the movie's about, but it has this way of... 
making it funny. Uh, like, yes, there's absurd, painful, hard stuff like Dennis Hopper begging for grandma while sniffing a vagina and then beating the woman. But at the same time, there's uh, the actor, I can't remember his name, the, the two main actors being goofy teenagers, and it's kind of hilarious. Uh, watching them, Comic Goffin, thank you, trying to go through this. And so that absurdity takes off some of the punch for me. It's not just constant Dennis Hopper <laughs> at his most creepy Well, the story here follows eight-year-old Seth, played by Jeremy Cooper. He lives in the 1950s in the middle of fucking nowhere. I think it's Kansas. I'm not entirely sure. He and his friends in the beginning literally uh, put a fire, uh, a, 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 well, it says a reed on Wikipedia. They blow up a frog like a balloon. They blow up a frog like a balloon and leave it in its ass and leave it by the side of the road. A local English widow who they are all kind of weirded out by named with the greatest name ever, Dolphin Blue, played by Lindsay Duncan, who herself feels like a proto version of Tilda Swinton. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and she comes, she comes out of this movie the best, I think. So I've ever she watched. looks, stops down to inspect it. The kid shoots it with a slingshot and explodes blood all over her. And you're like right off the bat, like, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, he goes back home. His mom is very harsh. Ruth, his very detached father, who is clearly very closeted gay and spends all his time just reading pulp novels and not wanting to be involved with what's ever going on. But uh, his older brother, Cameron Viggo Mortensen, has been away on military service on, on, uh, in the Pacific. Uh, he, Eventually comes back to the film, but the upshot is Seth is sent to Dolphin's house to apologize to the Frank, uh, for the frog prank. When he gets there, it's weird. It's a lot of weird (laughs) shit in that fucking house. It's just fucking weird, man. And he had already been told by the dad previously, like, the mythology of the vampire. You know, the dad's just telling him a scary story, you know, as dads will do. Gets there, and she starts saying stuff that, like, uh, that is meant for her symbolically because she doesn't know how to relate to children. She at one point says like, I I'm feel like I'm 200 years old. The kid takes it literally. Oh fuck. This kid lady's a vampire (laughs) and becomes like in, in the, uh, without actually being the villain of the movie in the kid's point of the view, she's, she's the villain of the film. Uh, but kids start disappearing in their neighborhood, such as it is. And, and showing up dead. Yeah, and showing up dead. And the, the one thing we know is, which the director said, yes, that's entirely metaphorical, which is a little dissatisfying when it comes to, like, wrapping up a story. There's a group of greasers in a badass black car who drive around yeah. and pick up the kids who serve no purpose in the plot who, who whatsoever. We, and it's that metaphors when the movie started to fall apart for me. Mm-hmm. Because there's a point when the main character explicitly sees them pick up a kid who's screaming and throwing him in the car who shows up dead later. Right. And I was just like, man, go tell the damn cops. Like, I know that this is a dream movie, but go tell the damn cops. So Viggo Mortensen comes back home. Uh, he starts dating a dolphin. There aren't a lot of choices in this town, to be fair. Not, yeah. uh, but because of where he was in the Pacific, where it was where the, near where the atom bomb is dropped, he starts getting radiation sickness. And the kid starts thinking, oh, my God, I she's draining him. get that. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of other little subplots going on. There's a weird thing where they find a dead angel fetus? I don't know what that was. Anyway, I don't want to say anymore. All I can say is, this is a thoroughly weird fucking movie that for some people is going to completely deliver. I I actually found this satisfying but with a satisfying question mark. Like, I'm like, I'm glad I finally saw this. And there's a lot of interesting things going on here, but it is one of those movies that, like, it's using that sort of, like, Dream logic. I mean, really, the whole thing feels like a dream. And it's better than most people, with the exception of David Lynch, when they do this sort of thing. Like, certainly. But it it feels so open-ended at the point where, yeah. like, I feel like you never finished your thought on this at the end. I'm That's like, the problem. He gets... So, I, I did not particularly enjoy this movie. I thought the visuals were great. I thought the cinematography was great. Uh, but he kind of forgets to make an end to his movie. Yeah, there's and, no end, really. 
like I'm all for surrealism. I'm all for having some really messed up stuff in your movie, but it, it still needs to tell a somewhat cohesive narrative. Yeah, or and at this least, just ultimately doesn't. Or at least emotionally feel like you did. Emotionally give you an ending or a sense of like a chapter stop. There's no chapter stop at the end of this thing. It's just like, okay. Yeah. And then what? <laughs> like, what did all that, what were you even trying to say by this? Or what did you want me to feel? I was feeling things throughout <laughs> it. And I enjoyed a lot of your imagery and I enjoyed some of these crazy actors. Like the actress playing Dolphin was great and creepy and the set design is wonderful and that cinematography is gorgeous. But a lot of these actors feel like they're working in community theater the way they're being directed and yeah. shot. Um, but it is a pretty, Looking film, um, it is a uh, 2K restoration of the film that Film Movement has put out. Uh, there's not a lot of special features. Uh, Ridley uh, has a commentary here where he goes through facts and analysis. Uh, um, it also includes Angels and Atom Bombs, which is a 40-minute making-of featurette, which looks at the production history and its post-existence, which has decidedly become a cult classic, and I get that. I mean, this is a film, the very definition of a cult classic, I get why that's not going to appeal to absolutely yeah. everyone. It is a faulty film that has a lot of charm you to know, it, nonetheless. If, you know who I imagine really enjoying this movie? The kind of people who like to take, like, shrooms and watch really messed up cinema. That used to be me! Well, like, th- this is the perfect movie for that. You're going to trip balls and have a great time. Alright, well, let's go on to... Well, you know what? Should we stop at 40 minutes? Wait, hold on. One, two, three, four. No, that's only four movies. We have one, two, three, four, five movies left to talk about, but two of the, at least three of them are movies we're going to talk about for a while. Yeah, probably. So, should we stop with Avengers? Should we do Avengers Endgame and then do the next well, one you, four, or just try and push through? Yeah, I say let's do Avengers Endgame and then group the rest into the next part. Alright! Next up we have Avengers Endgame. <laughs> You're only happy because now you don't have to decide for your pick in the week. <laughs> you're okay. You're right. You're right. Yeah, very true. Avengers Endgame finally out on Blu-ray and 4K. I only got to see this once in the theater. And if you listen to the highly suspect review on the site, which you can put in the search bar and look for there, um, I was the person who gave it the lowest rating. I remember. I, and I saw, I thought the last one was like everything I wanted for wham, bam, pow, awesome, greatest action movie, like a superhero action movie ever. It's funny how often I see people like criticizing and I'm like, you're just not really a huge superhero guy, well, are you? So the Avengers movies to me, they've, none of them have, okay, with the exception of the one we're about to talk about, none of them have particularly great narratives to me. They're not about that. It's always been the Don't individual agree. movies are for mass amount of change. They're for what about Civil War? character narratives. And then... What about Civil War and Winter Soldier? That's a Captain America movie. Yeah, I'm talking about Avengers movies. specifically. Oh, okay. But then the Avengers movies are always their team-ups. They're action throughout almost the entire movie. It's just setting they're up pay a plot off. and paying off they're the... Literally that exact yeah. moment of a climax when you can't think. Yeah. And that's what all of the Avengers movies are. Like, I enjoy Avengers 1. I actually really like Part 2. And I thought Infinity War was a great movie that just punches you in the gut for the last 20 minutes. Yeah, they're both... All three of the first three Avengers films are perfect blockbuster entertainment. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I'll agree with you. Age of Ultron is great. And like, it's so fun that the fact that people even have problems with it is only based on the fact that Marvel was just doing one great movie well, after it, another, it's, and it was holding to a higher standard. If you take them apart from the universe, I get the complaints. Mm-hmm. Because on an individual looking at this movie and only this movie way, yes, they do have issues. There isn't a lot of character change in a lot of them. There are very plot-based. There, There is just a lot of mindless action. But if you look at them in the scope of the greater universe that Marvel is doing... You know, as this is the season finale to a season uh, which is comprised of movies, they work perfectly. Okay, so that's will, how you have to view. I will say, addressing specifically your mindless action. Sorry, I'm, I'm. I'm. I've seen a lot of mindless action films that we were like, so it's just action and nothing else interesting. There's no style or comfort. Like, and then we go to the raid. For You're instance, right. Which is nothing but action done so well and with so many unique things you haven't seen before and so much finesse, the Avengers films are straight action 
that every second is thought out to well, a, uh, to the, the nth degree, including making you laugh and like balancing all these things together and balancing these character moments. The thing is, Infinity War is a setup uh, that makes you is more like those previous films for Endgame, which is a quieter film for three quarters of it, which is more about remorse. Well, uh, so first of all, you're right. They're not mindless. It's, it's just action. Yeah. Um, it's action where what we remember, and this is something I love is not the action. It's the small moments, uh, which is something that Marvel should be held for. But yes, sorry. they're great. Marvel's to, always to, been great at the small moments. to actually talk about in game. Yeah, I, I watched this video online that talked about how Endgame was a study in grief and how trauma changes you mm-hmm. as a human being and how fundamentally the way you react to things are different after you have experienced this event. And it's, we watched the Avengers fail and this is them working through that trauma. Uh, that's what the entire movie is. It's a is. huge drama. I mean, yeah. it's one of the first films I've seen in I don't even know how long uh, that is about a world, like, like a world felt, but here more American felt the way it's dealt with trauma that is not constantly referencing 9-11. Yep. That is its own thing, that it is enough with the emotional stuff it's built up over 22 films that we don't need to reference that stuff. You get it. We've been through there. We don't need to remind you of that. It's political, but not in a specifically referencing anything political film. It's about hard decisions. It's about these characters having to make incredibly difficult decisions to realize that there is no absolutely right decision, you know, when it comes to choosing lives, choosing what's right. And it took me a little while watching it the first time to emotionally adjust to its slower pace after Infinity War, where you come out of Infinity War and you just want vengeance immediately. And the movie does that, and then it is hollow, and it's supposed to be hollow. It's funny. Before watching this movie, I was joking that it would be really funny if we watched all of Endgame and they finally got to Thanos and he had killed himself. Right. Like, that was going to be the climax of the movie in the last 30 minutes of them just going, oh, well, what do we do now? That would have been funny. He left a little note that's the you mad bro. I was like, no, like, that's the first 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah. And they, like, I think it takes 15 minutes total, and they jump ahead five years where Ant-Man, who was conspicuously absent for the last movie because, lo and behold, he got stuck in the quantum realm, shows back up with because of one of the movie's few coincidental flaws. and Although pers- the, the word is that they're going to explain that as a Loki thing at some point. I don't need that. That's what I hear. Whatever. Like just I hand, almost would like if they did, because that's one of the moments I was like, eh. Which, and that's kind of what I like, is that Ant-Man is kind of the main character of Endgame, emotionally, and there is a scene... Not emotionally. Uh, dude, there is a scene... Within within five minutes of him showing up, like watching his journey, and, and I can I can talk about this because it is in the very beginning of coming out, realizing that something happened, going to make sure that his family is okay, and seeing his name on the list of those who are died, and like him reuniting with his daughter. There's a scene when he sees his daughter, who is five years older now for the first time, uh, and. It, I think, might be his best acting that he has ever done. Like, as a dad who had, like, just... Better than Clueless? <laughs> I I bawled at that scene. Like, hardcore. That may be my hardest cry in the All whole right, movie. So I start crying right off the start in this, because it started exactly how I called it when oh. we reviewed the last one. I know you're right. I cried there, too. <laughs> exactly how I called it. This movie's going to start with Hawkeye and his family and his family disappearing. Go back and listen to the review. I fucking called it. It's exactly how this movie starts, and I started crying right off the yep. bat. I was like, no, Jerry Renner, you've had a hard enough time as it is. <laughs> you but, were supposed to be leading the Mission Impossible franchise. So, uh, <laughs> so Ant-Man finds the surviving Avengers, gathers them up, pitches them on the idea of a time heist yeah. um, where they fix their wrongs. 
Um, and we, we get to meet each of the different Avengers and how they've all changed. You know, Iron Man is a happy dad and just about every damn scene he's in, I cry at. Uh, Thor is a overweight drunkard. Uh, who is dealing with depression and trauma and who, to the movie's credit, never gets felt. Like, I was really happy that he didn't, like, become in shape at the end. He, he is Fat Thor the whole way through the movie. I will say, like, I was watching it and going, oh, God, I'm already waiting for people to, like, have their think pieces about how it's offensive. And, of course, that happened, and immediately, literally, Thousands of overweight people and famously overweight people responded and said, stop. Yeah. This guy pulled his shit together and got stuff done. The only person making fun of him is Rack, Robert, uh, is Raccoon, uh, Rocket. And he makes fun of absolutely everyone. Well, and, <laughs> and, and the jokes are never like, yes, they are fat jokes, right. but it's more like it, it's more about the fact that he has fallen from grace and he is going through a hard time. And it's that and he does look it, like melted it, ice cream. It, it, it is. <laughs> it's the kind of making fun that friends do where it's, it's not meant to like put him down. It's meant to try to be like, dude, like you're, you're better than this. You, you need to be better than you are right now. Right. Uh, I mean, and it's interesting. A lot of the, uh, one of the bonus features on here gets really into like uh, Chris Hemsworth, who was going to leave this whole franchise until Thor three, he was set to leave here. And they ended up rewriting to keep him in because he was like, I loved working with TD. I love the fact that you guys are willing to let me try different stuff. So the fat Thor was actually kind of at his behest to some degree. He wanted really badly to play a, to keep playing different variations on this character, like wildly different shit happens that changes who he is. And here he's one of the highlights because he's playing uh, it completely differently than we've seen him play before, but still based on like based on a sort of a, a sense of shame and 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 reluctance to admit where he's gone wrong, like well, that arrogance of Thor, but shame mixed with that. Like it's a new character in a lot of he, ways. He has my second favorite moment in the movie, which is when he finds his self worth. Yeah, like oh my, just so basically. This entire movie, every single character, I think they nailed what they would be like five years later. Everybody gets so many great moments. Even the characters, even if it's not... Like, they make a point of giving everybody at least one really poignant or important moment in the film. Now, I, I... I want to mention roundabout ways, one character who gets a lot of flack which is Black Widow, because mm-hmm. this movie got a lot of flack for how her story kind of goes throughout this narrative. I I thought it tracked. So, like, I have never had terrible issues with how Black Widow was treated specifically as a character, meaning, like, the decisions she makes, uh, how she acts to things. I've thought that worked. I agree that she deserved her own movie in phase two. And, She's getting one. Um, uh, and <laughs> I get that she, she has been underutilized, but I still thought that what they did with her, that aside really worked. And I actually like her personal narrative throughout this franchise. I just wish we had seen more of it. She's an outsider. She feels like an outsider from the beginning. Um, she's kind of coming in as a someone who doesn't want to be a villain anymore yeah. when she starts. And uh, we don't know a lot about that. We just know enough to know she wasn't always on the good guy's side. And as she's gone along, it's about her finding and starting to trust that these people really are family. A lot of people immediately, anytime a major female character dies in a film, they're like, oh, you're just fridging her. I'm like... I'm sorry, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. There's a lot of cases in entertainment where that's it. Watching two characters fight over who gets to die to make the story move forward, well, fight fuck. over it. Okay, uh, I was, I was dancing not, around that. Is not <laughs> bridging a character. Well, and, 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 <laughs> yeah, 
the question I always ask when I watch a scene that has a lot of controversy is, does it track with what I imagine those characters would do separate from this movie being a movie in our world? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Age of Ultron, which there, she caught a lot of flack for her lines about being a monster and the way she saw herself because of her infertility. And I thought that that made sense with her character at the time. Yeah, me too. And that sequence, how it plays out, I think it tracks those two characters in that situation. That is what would happen. And as unfortunate as it is to see one of the only female characters in the Marvel Universe go the way she does. Well, she's not one of the only. Come on. She she is... There's a lot now. Fine. The first. Yeah. Um... I mean, they showed them all together on screen in one scene. (laughs) It was frustrating, but it still made sense. And and my complaint with the Black Widow movie is that it's a prequel. Or so you think. True. Which I I really hope that that's not what happens, that that it plays out differently, but because I'm not as interested in what's happened. Maybe they're doing it. Maybe they're doing a thing with Cap having gone back. We don't know what knows. Like, and this is a parallel timeline thing. And that crosses back over. We don't know. It makes sense. Anything's possible. We already know that Loki, his, I mean, he died in the beginning of the infinity war. He is dead. I mean, and, and his TV show is supposed to be, uh, a different Loki, which is seen here going off on adventures. I I love that Avengers Endgame, as much as like, if you're not one of those people who's looking for aha like moments for the future of the franchise, what moments that are like that are so subtle and kind of like off to the side that the movie's not forcing you to pay attention to them. Yeah. But there's a lot of shit like that going on around the edges. That's like, okay, so we have a whole new phase coming up with the fact there. One of the early ones is a black widow film and her character is dead. You're like, uh, there's no way these guys would just do a prequel without to mean anything in the bigger yeah. picture here. You know, I, I have a hard time believing that. And, and Scarlett Johansson never expressed any inclinations towards wanting to retire away from this ever. And, you know, the other characters who have been moved out of this franchise have. You're right. And I'm like, I'm thinking that she's the one who's going to decidedly find, they'll find a way to come back. I would love that. That would make yeah. me very happy. I agreed. Uh, but there's, I think everybody here gets a great moment. Um, it goes back and forth from lightly funny to very funny. Uh, goes back and forth from really sad to not sad at all to feeling of triumph to holy shit sad. Yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there's a movie I've seen in recent memory that I've cried more at than this. Oh, yeah. Both I happy cry like once every 10, 15 minutes because there are such beautiful moments of character that happen. And then there are some losses that occur in this movie that cut me to my fucking bone. This movie, as I said in my initial review, I absolutely had to see it again to know how I really felt about it because it was just too big of a... Too big of a thing emotionally and like in its place in this universe of films for me to be able to gauge it accurately the first time. And seeing it a second time, I liked it considerably more. Agreed. Um, I still have some issues with time travel details, but come on. There is literally one thing that bugs me about the time travel in this entire movie. Coming back. It's, yes. And I get why they did what they did. Because it's a beautiful moment, and I yeah. cry my ass off through but that whole they thing. Had explained earlier but, why that wouldn't. But have yeah, to happen. it's the only thing that explicitly breaks the rules yeah. they set. And yeah, that drives like, me crazy. Uh, the uh, Tilda Swinton character goes, "If you change something, it splits off an alternate timeline. So in your timeline, that never would have happened. That's a parallel universe. Yeah. So he never should have been there at the end of the film. Whatever. You're like nerd. Shut up. Yeah, I get it." But, you know, I mean, it, whatever. They shouldn't in the same film have gone, this is explicitly how this works, and then broken their own rule. How about just have it be a note? Have it be a note. Have yeah. it be a fucking note. That's all I needed. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever. Anyways, it doesn't matter. second time, I was like, nitpick, I don't though. care as yeah. much anymore. I mean, it still bugs me that I expected a little better out of Marvel. It's usually so good at tying up all their loose ends, but... Let's go into the uh, the bonus features here. Disc one, uh, the feature film itself, has an intro by the directors, which uh, Anthony and Joe Russo, who largely are just sort of, I can't believe, just a few years after we were just guys working on Community, we're doing <laughs> this shit, and like our liter- are, are unquestionably the greatest directors in the the twenty two Marvel 
film lineup. I mean, they made uh, yeah two Avengers or they made uh, two Avengers movies, two, two Captain, Captain America films. films, and they were both uh, and those are arguably the four best films in the entire franchise. Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, there is a commentary by them and the writers, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who also were on all four of those films, <laughs> talking about all the details. Disc 2 is an entirely bonus disc, which has a really nice seven-minute Remembering Stan Lee, which is a full-on tribute piece. For those of you taking the side of Stan Lee's daughter, do your research. She's a money-grubbing piece of shit who is doing elderly abuse. Yeah, um, everybody I, involved is pretty shitty right a, there. Any argument that Marvel didn't pay him the proper amount of tribute or anything like that is so provably and obviously false. She's just looking for money. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out that Sony wrote her a big check. <laughs> uh, there's Setting the Tone, casting Robert Downey Jr., five and a half minutes, a look at his work throughout there. A Man Out of Time, creating Captain America, 12 and a, uh, 12 and a half minutes at him, which actually kind of made me tear up at points. I love that it really gets into how Evans, Chris Evans as a human being changed who he was by becoming Captain America and the effect of playing this person and like how he became such a different human being. And I was like, I got kind of emotionally worked up. Cause he's such it. a beautiful man now. He's, like, and he's I, I, don't, into, I don't mean visually like, yeah. no, he's he is that wonder- too. Yeah. yeah. He's just a wonderful human being. He's just turned into a guy that you're like, if they had the super soldier serum, I think we all agreed to give it to you. Like, that's a, <laughs> the, so, the two things that I'm most impressed about that Marvel has done is one hiring almost universally a cast of characters who are all have all ended up being truly amazingly wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Like all their headliners are just great people. Yeah. And then also from a narrative sense, I now going into phase four feel like I did right before Iron Man came out where like, I legitimately have no concept of what's coming next. You could literally watch these first 24 movies and be like, I'm never watching a Marvel movie again, and you have the complete story. Yeah, it's it works. weird to me that we have to wait till May for whatever... Well, I can't remember what the next one is. I but think it's like, Black... Shang-Chi? No. No, I can't remember. It's not Shang-Chi. I can't Maybe, remember what the I think it's, It might be Black Widow, actually. It might be Black Widow. But, like, wow, that's the longest wait we've ever had for the Marvel film. But um, they also look at Black Widow, whatever it takes. So the upshot is here that for seven and a half minutes. There's three featurettes on the characters who died, <laughs> which is kind of nice. And they're all well done. Um, there's the Russo Brothers' Journey to Endgame with five minutes, which is a brief look at their work at all the films they've worked at. Uh, the Women of the MCU for five minutes, Self-evident. Um, Bro Thor for uh, three and three quarters minutes, basically looking through Thor's arc and how he's changed. There's just under five minutes of deleted scenes, none of which are really essential, but vaguely amusing. A lot of them have Rocket Raccoon in them in a pre-CG sort of mode. Does Bro Thor talk about love and thunder? <laughs> There's two minutes of gag reel, and for whatever reason, gag reels have taken a serious downturn over the years. I'm always like, they're just too overly edited. Give me ten minutes of gag reel of just you know, unfucking finessed, straight up people uh, corpsing on set and shit I, like I that. still think the best Marvel gag is the scene from Avengers 1 when Chris Evans catches his shield and uh, Chris Hemsworth is supposed to catch his hammer yeah. but fumbles it yeah. and in slow-mo it's just like grab, 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 grab and fails every time. There's some funny moments with it but it's like Honestly, with this much footage, you know you've got more than under two minutes worth of gag reel stuff. Oh, yeah. I don't need it put into a cute YouTube and, clip and You're right. Thing. Like, Just give me the work print of all the gags for and I'll everything watch them. that they do right with this set. It would have been nice to have been like, here's like 30 minutes of gag from of just, the entire franchise. Of just people like, like gag slash like just people bullshitting on set, you know, yeah. like behind the scenes stuff because there's almost no behind the scenes stuff on this set. Like 
what you expect from something this epic is like what they put out with the Lord of the Rings movies, where it's like, here's 17 hours of how we did everything. Which I would buy that. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you, I, I don't and do they, discs anymore, and I would buy that. And they know that, <laughs> which is probably why we're getting the version as it truncated as it is, which definitely feels truncated. Like, where's all the, how in the fuck did they do that? There's none of that here. So if you're somebody who's on the fence about buying this, I'm like, but you're, and you're one of the people like, I'm going to watch this movie 300 time, more times in my life. You might want to wait for whatever the future version that they're pro- almost certainly going to put out that's going to be the super ultra mega edition of this. Yeah, it's going to be all. Uh, I mean, there's always that chance that they're not going to, they're only going to put out that version in the mega super shaped like Avengers, like Captain America Shield 4K set thing, whatever, for a thousand bucks. And then you'll be like, I can't afford that. Thanks, nah, Chris. But, no, no, no. It, it's going to be shaped like the gauntlet. There you go. Shaped like the gauntlet. Yeah, exactly. Be. But, um, <laughs> Um, as it is, this is great. That the, the stuff that is on here for bonus features is really great and well worth your time, and even like kind of emotionally hits you. I think this is one of the best films of the year. It's a really amazing transfer. Whether you only get it on Blu-ray or 4K, it looks great both ways. I'm gonna watch this movie like so many more times, and this yeah. is decidedly the pick of this week. Like, I think my only real complaint is that it's so long that I can't just watch Endgame. You gotta watch Infinity War and Game, Endgame, and that's like a yeah. six-hour time yeah. sink. Well, it's like going um, into Lord of the Rings. Nobody goes. I'm just gonna watch Fellowship <laughs> of the Ring. You're not. Yeah, this is clearly my pick of the week. Yeah. I was tempted to say New Kids was just to fuck with you, but yeah. this is my pick. I of would the kill week. you. I would rip your throat out with my teeth. I, my hair would like in front of you bleach blonde and I would turn into 80s James Spader 